Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It is Thursday, May 23rd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. We'll talk to Jill O'Donnell-Tormey, CEO of the Cancer Research Institute, about what emerging science she's looking out for. Consumer genetics companies promise to analyze your saliva and explain your ancestry, but their conclusions can drastically change over time. We discuss an emerging phenomenon in the growing space. Next up, we'll talk to Alexandra Glorioso, a healthcare reporter for Politico, about what it's like to report on this world while undergoing treatment for breast cancer. Finally, we'll discuss the curious case of a health tech startup CEO who appears to have lied about her age to get on one of those overhyped 30 under 30 style lists. But first, a word from our sponsor. Support for this podcast comes from Medible. Medible provides the leading integrated cloud platform for data-driven and digitally-enabled clinical trials, allowing organizations to function as a connected team and bring effective therapies to patients faster. Learn more at Medible.com and get a demo today. That's www.medable.com. For those unfamiliar, ASCO stands for the American Society of Clinical Oncology Annual Meeting. Each year during the first week of June, tens of thousands of cancer scientists, oncologists, biotech and drug companies, and reporter folks like us gather in Chicago to see and hear the latest in cancer drug research. And so to help set the table for what to expect at ASCO this year, we're joined by Jill O'Donnell-Tormey, who is CEO and Director of Scientific Affairs at the Cancer Research Institute, which is a nonprofit organization that supports and coordinates research aimed at using the immune system to treat cancer. Jill, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Well, thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. So, Jill, how many ASCO meetings have you attended? This year will be number 18 for me. Well, you've got me beat. I'd say, uh, believe it or not, I think I've only been to about five or six. And you've got to remember that the Cancer Research Institute's been around for 66 years with a focus on cancer immunology. And it hasn't really been till about the last six or seven years that immunotherapy got any play at ASCO. So there was really no reason for me to be there. So that's uh, really a testament to how the field has evolved and that the basic research that we have helped to support has laid the foundation to what has been an explosion, I'd say, really since I guess around 2011 or so. So yeah, I mean, over that period of time, as you mentioned, so much has changed. What do you see as the state of cancer immunotherapy now on the eve of, of ASCO 2019? Well, I think the state of immunotherapy is terrific. I think, you know, as a, for us, this is a, almost, I don't know what I would call it, a renaissance period for the Cancer Research Institute, but we, it's such, a, for me, it's, it's, we've now have credibility that what we have had uh, the vision for for so many years has really come to fruition. We are in a place we've never been before. I think immunotherapies have shown that we, that they have a place in the treatment of cancer. Uh, many people didn't believe that was ever going to happen, but I think we have the proof of principle that at least in a subset of patients, immunotherapy can deliver sometimes miraculous results for late-stage cancer patients. And I think the challenge we have now is obviously that isn't happening for every cancer patient or for every type of cancer, but we know that the immune system is capable of doing this in human beings. And the task is to continue supporting the research that will let us understand what is the difference and why do some people respond and some don't. And it's a very complicated field. So I don't expect 
that we're going to get these answers overnight, but I think this is why the Cancer Research stays here and continues to support the entire spectrum of research. And I do believe that eventually immunotherapy will have a role to play in the treatment of every cancer. So, Jill, at least from kind of an investor and analyst perspective, there seems to be a little less excitement in the immunotherapy area at this year's ASCO than than in years past. Do you think that's warranted? I think I agree with you. I think that there's less big news breaking at ASCO this year in immunotherapy. I think we've had a run of several years where immunotherapy has kind of dominated the discussions going on and then the plenary lectures. I think this year we're not seeing that. And I don't think that means, you know, immunotherapy has lost its luster, but that I think it's the natural kind of rhythm of how clinical development happens. I think we were very lucky for a number of years. We were we're seeing all new cancer types being tested, all of these very positive results in almost every immunotherapy trial. And then more recently, there's been some failures. And I think it's just a po- this is why we do research. Not everything's going to work. I think there's still great interest. I mean, as I think you know, the Cancer Research Institute does an IO landscape where we really track the field. And we just did a recent update at uh, the beginning, I guess, of May. And there is still 4,200 a little more than 4,200 active trials testing different IO drugs. And within those 4,200, there's more than 2,800 that are using T-cell targeted therapies like PD-1s and CTLA-4s and such. So there's a lot going on. But I think uh, what we're seeing is not everything's going to work. And perhaps there was this big rush of combining everything with PD-1. No matter what you had, you combined it with PD-1. And there maybe was a false expectation that this was all going to work as well as the original PD-1s or the original CTLA-4 PDL one combination did. And unfortunately, that isn't happening. And I think this is why we have to go back to biology. We have to understand what's happening so we can more rationally design trials and combine the right agents together for the right patients. So speaking of going back to biology, let's get into some specifics about this com- upcoming ASCO. Jill, are there any particular presentations that you're really looking forward to that you think might kind of move the needle forward in some of these outstanding questions? Well, I think one of the things that you see probably, uh, which may be a little bit off off target what we're talking about, but that there is more cellular therapy being looked at. And I think also some bites, some bispecific, you know, T-cell engagers. And I think that's an exciting new area. I think we've all seen, again, we have two approved CAR therapies for, you know, the, the hematological malignancies. I think another big challenge in the field is can CAR T cells be used and can this therapy be developed for solid tumors? I think that's another big challenge that we're facing. And by specifics may be able to do that without being CAR T cells. You may be able to get, you know, the, the, the both sides of the coin there. And I think one of we're also seeing is that the take up of CAR T cells from a manufacturing and distribution has not, even with the FDA approved agents, hasn't really been taken up by a lot of patients and, and physicians. And so bite therapy might be the way to go that may uh, have a role to play besides, you know, CAR T cells. So, Jill, one of the advantages of the bispecific antibodies is that they're off the shelf, uh, as opposed to the personalized uh, cancer cell therapies like CAR-Ts. How do you see that sort of battle, the sort of the bite bispecific antibodies versus the cellular, the personalized cellular therapies playing out? Well, I think we all know that the personalized uh, therapies is kind of a a new thing for pharma. I mean, pharma is not used to delivering drugs that are so personalized. So I think they have shown 
remarkable responses. I mean, almost miraculous when you see some of these, you know, in ALL or something, you know, 80% response rates or more. So it's it's a phenomenally powerful technology. But I think we do have hurdles. And I think you're seeing that in terms of the take up of and the usage of heart T cell therapies, because of the fact that they the manufacturing is cumbersome. And though it's doable, it's cumbersome. So pharma certainly knows how and likes things off the shelf. So I think anything that can be made off the shelf will have a, a, an advantage. Uh, you know, there is still the question from a scientific and clinical perspective, can they deliver as well as a living drug like like a, a T-cell that's in there? Will they be as durable? I mean, it looks like CAR T-cells require, you know, one infusion, and then you can get these remarkable results. And I think that's another thing going down is that CAR T-cells will could probably move down to frontline and not after giving to people that have had, you know, bone marrow transplants and, you know, multiple different chemotherapy regimes. If you could move that downstream, especially in the pediatric setting, that would be a remarkable, potentially curable disease for, for, for these hematological malignancies. But we do have to worry about, does it make sense? And will pharma be able to figure out how to do this in a way that they can really roll it out to a large population. So, Joe, thanks for your time and uh, joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. Enjoy ASCO this year. When I first got on Ancestry, I was really surprised that I wasn't finding all of these Germans in my uh, tree. I decided to have my DNA tested through Ancestry DNA. The big surprise was we're, we're not German at all. 52% of my DNA comes from Scotland and Ireland. That was a TV commercial for a DNA Ancestry test one of many on the market that promises customers they can spit into a tube and unlock the mysteries of their genealogy. But what the ad didn't mention is that genetic testing is an evolving science, which means your ancestry results can shift over time. You might have been half Irish on the first blush, but a later update could take that number down to one quarter. So that'll make scientific sense, right? As these companies get more genetic data, they can draw more refined conclusions. But at the same time, it's led to an emerging phenomenon, one in which Customers get a shocking initial result, but later they learn that all that ancestral soul-searching was a waste. So, Damien, you wrote a story this week about this very issue. Tell us about it. Yeah, so what kind of put me onto this was the story of a guy named Leonard Kim. And he spent the first three decades of his life believing that he was about 100% Korean. Um, everyone in his family felt that way about their ancestry, and, and that was how he identified so then in 2016, he took a test from 23andMe, one of the uh, companies that, that sells these ancestry DNA tests, and got a result that startled him. It said that he was almost half Japanese. And so, you know, in addition to clashing with who he thought he was, that, you know, the history between Korea and Japan is one that is stained by bloodshed and oppression and war. And so, you know, as you might imagine, it took Leonard some time to really wrap his head around this and do the soul searching to accept that his identity included, apparently, ancestry tied to a nation that had that relationship with uh, with what he considers his ancestral homeland. Then came a twist, right? Exactly. So uh, Leonard was out with his wife and some friends, and uh, they were just kind of having a conversation. And someone mentioned that he was half Japanese. And a friend said, I don't think you are. And so naturally, he said, well, I'll show you. And he pulled out his phone and he went to 23andMe's website, expecting to find the result we just described. However, at some point between then and when he last looked at it, the results had been updated. And suddenly, instead of being nearly half Japanese, he was less than 5% Japanese. He was basically fully Korean as he had spent three decades assuming he had been. So Damien, what is the explanation for how all of this happens? 
So your results on a given DNA ancestry test are only as strong as the data that the companies have to back up their conclusions. So what took place between when Leonard first looked at it and when he did the second time is that 23andMe got a lot more data about populations from East Asia and was able to make a different deduction based upon Leonard's spit test. And this happens to pretty much everyone who takes these tests. The thing is that it's often a larger change if you are a customer of color because of just biases in science dating back, I guess, as long as dates go back, genetic data sets are predominantly white. And so if you are of African or in Leonard's case, East Asian descent, the initial conclusions are based upon a fairly small amount of data. So a relatively small update to that can drastically swing them because you're dealing with a small number to begin with. So Damien, are companies like 23andMe and Ancestry upfront about the fact that the results of their customers may change over time? They are. So, you know, combing through the websites, there are FAQs and explanations about exactly what we just said. And in both cases, whenever the companies do a data update, whenever they add to the uh, data set by which they base these conclusions, they put out a blog post that kind of explains, you know, we used to cover this many regions in Africa, and now we cover this many. And here's how your results might change um, if that's your ancestry. However, the way they're marketed is a different story. You know, the commercial that we heard uh, just now, you know, paints a kind of playful and jaunty picture about, you know, going from assuming you were German to assuming you were Irish. And talking to genealogists and, and bioethicists, you know, they think that's a little bit fraught because as, as Leonard's case illustrates, going from thinking you're 100% Korean to thinking you're half Japanese, it's not the kind of thing that, you know, has you dancing in lederhosen. I mean, there's a, there's a complicated political history there. And so, you know, a lot of the outstanding questions are, should these tests be marketed a little differently? Should they be pitched in a way such that the kind of existential whiplash that Leonard went through is less likely to happen? And this isn't a new issue, right, Damien? I mean, we've heard complaints about how genetic tests are advertised as kind of as long as genetic tests have been advertised. Exactly. I mean, the thing that it called to mind for me is something we talked about on this podcast uh, before, I think, um, which was last summer's uh, 23andMe ad campaign with uh, Fox Sports. So if you recall, and you probably do, the United States of America did not qualify for the World Cup last year, and Fox Sports had paid a bunch of money for the broadcast rights. So Fox and 23andMe saw kind of a clever co-marketing agreement where they would say, take a 23andMe test, learn your DNA ancestry, and then we'll tell you which team to root for. And the problem with that in the eyes of many people is, is akin to what we were just talking about. You know, DNA is science, so that's that. However, countries are political entities. Borders change over time. And so a lot of people got results that suggested they root for a team that maybe they didn't really want to. You know, if you have Ashkenazi Jewish DNA and then a website tells you to root for Germany in the World Cup, you know, that's there's a fraught history there, to say the very least. So as more data gets added to these companies' data sets, are we going to reach a point where these issues you describe become moot? That is the goal. And, you know, to the credit of 23andMe and Ancestry, they are not just waiting for outside researchers to get better data on some of these underrepresented populations. They're also doing it themselves. And so, you know, talking to the companies, their dream is that one day they can say to literally anyone, regardless of his or her ethnicity, that if you take one of these tests, we can give you a very strong you know, conclusion about what your ancestry is, and it will not change drastically over time. But as of right now, that just remains a goal. All healthcare reporters deal with the medical system outside of work. 
but not many of them have dealt with it like Alexandra Glorioso has in recent months. Alexandria is a reporter for Politico. She's based in Tallahassee, Florida, and she writes about healthcare, insurance, and the state legislature. She covers stories like the push to expand Medicaid in Florida and legislative proposals to rein in drug costs. Last summer, at the age of 31, Alexandra was diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer. She underwent chemo, participated in a clinical trial with an experimental drug, and had surgery. In March, she announced some fantastic news. She was in remission, no evidence of disease. Alexandra joins us today to talk about what this whole experience has been like and how it shaped her thinking as a healthcare reporter. Alexandra, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we were so happy to hear about your cancer remission, as Adam mentioned. How are you doing and what kind of treatment are you currently undergoing? Yeah, it has been a really weird experience actually going through becoming in remission because I thought, my life would get easier after that, (laughs) but it didn't. So I am still getting treated. I am almost done with radiation. I've gotten 34 treatments total. Um, And then after that, I'll start a new clinical trial. So So Alexandra, you wrote a personal essay right after your diagnosis that went viral. Uh, It was called, I'm Coping with Cancer by Reporting on It. Can you explain to us what you meant by that? I really meant that in that essay, I felt like the only way that I could maintain some kind of semblance of control while I was going through this really surreal and out-of-body experience, you know, a cancer diagnosis, totally out of left field, you know, I was reporting on what was happening to me. And that's why I ended up writing an essay about it, because I had been reporting on it. So Alexandra, back in January, you tweeted about a really frustrating situation you were experiencing. And that's a situation that I think is familiar to many cancer patients. You wrote that Moffitt Cancer Center, that's where you were receiving your treatment, was trying to cancel your MRI ahead of your surgery because your insurance company wouldn't approve it. Give us the story about what happened. Yeah, that was also a pretty crazy experience. Um, my personal and my professional really collided that day because I was really frustrated. I get a regular stream of insurance denials on my tests and everything. And typically, I go through the rigmarole of getting my doctor to call and all of that. And for some reason, even though my doctor called about a important MRI I needed to know where to basically perform surgery on my breast and in my armpit, basically, to take out the tumor. So it was a critical test. And even though somebody had contacted them, they still denied it. And I was just so mad. And I called um, Moffitt to try and talk to them about it, to try and figure out how much my out-of-pocket cost would be. And I was, you know, sent around to all these different departments and then finally to a fax machine and just hung up. So I literally couldn't find out how much I would have to pay for the test. And because I couldn't know whether I could pay for the test, they wouldn't schedule me for the MRI. So I was not going to get this test I needed. And I was just furious and frustrated. And I just started tweeting about it because that's kind of, you know, second nature to me as a reporter. And then the whole thing just like took off from there. 
Oh my gosh. And were you able to get that situation resolved? Yeah. So basically a longtime lobbyist in Tallahassee who I don't even know, but who follows me on Twitter and um, he knew the founder of Moffitt, H. Lee Moffitt, who's actually a former House Speaker, and called him. And then Moffitt ended up putting his personal executive team onto my case, and they ended up negotiating it out with my insurance company and resolved the entire thing within a matter of days. So I went from having literally no access to anybody in the billing department at Moffitt to having the founder's personal assistants working on the case for me. And, you know, obviously that was not what I intended to happen. And I had to tell my boss about it because it could appear, appear like a conflict of interest. And this lobbyist you know, told me to call him and had to send me his number because I don't even know him. And I just thanked him for it and hung up and just called my boss and told them what happened. And, you know, we talked about me doing a story about it to try and be transparent. And I might at some point, it's just kind of like on a long list of things I have to do. Well, how do you? I think that it's an interesting, it's an interesting case and an example. How do you sort of navigate these two roles that you have? You know, you're you're a, you're a patient, you're undergoing treatment, you're also a reporter. You have a you know relatively high profile. You have a probably have a lot like a lot of reporters have a long list of contacts that you know ordinary patients don't necessarily have. I mean, is that is that been difficult, challenging for you to kind of navigate those two worlds? Oh yeah, I think it's like. I mean, aside from just dealing with like the administrative nightmare that is cancer, <laughs> dealing with like the ethical <laughs> like hula hoops is also, I think, the worst part about having it. But also kind of interesting because I think, you know, it really has opened up my mind to different avenues of reporting because just having to be a patient is such is such a time suck and also just such an emotional suck and you know, you really start to understand what that's like. But um, yeah, I mean, it's case by case. And so sort of on that topic, do you feel like, you know, since your diagnosis, it's affected the kind of stories that you're interested in pursuing as a healthcare reporter or, or the way that you go about reporting them? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's making me a better reporter. It's just changed the way I understand healthcare because you know, I hate to say it, but I was a 31-year-old kid in a way. I never had a serious illness. I never had to deal with hospitals in a meaningful way. I never had to feel skeptical of my physicians. You know, I just didn't have that burden. And so I treated healthcare like a political reporter and a legislative reporter. And I would write about the gamesmanship and the deals that hospitals would cut to get money and in the budget and, you know, the politicians involved. And all of that is important reporting, but I think that my reporting is going to start becoming more dimensional, you know. And I guess one recent example is that I have gotten all really interested in Medicare fraud and anti-kickback laws and the incentives hospitals and doctors have 
to really conspire against patients and make their lives harder. And I don't think I would have appreciated why those stories were really important until I became a patient. So you've said that you opened up your Twitter direct messages um, so that you can exchange tips and and have conversations with other cancer patients. What's that been like um, from your vantage point as a reporter? That has been, I guess, maybe the most fulfilling thing about having cancer. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a private person, ironically, since I'm really out there with this cancer thing. Um, but I think that I do that, frankly, because I'm a writer and I like to control the message probably and the narrative. So <laughs> I just write about having it. It, you know, probably helps me cope with it. But talking to patients, you know, and I didn't really have to do that a lot before because I write for Politico and, you know, we kind of write for insiders. But I do talk to patients all the time now. And it is just fascinating how many people have cancer and how young they are. And, you know, there's a whole network of patients on the internet who are sharing information with each other that they gather from all their different treatment providers um, because it's hard to manage. And that is just an amazing thing that, you know, people are self-assembling to do. And I'm so grateful that I've discovered this network and it's really helped me as a patient. And it's an amazing resource as a reporter. So, Alexandra, what is next for you, you know, in terms of both your health policy coverage and and your own uh, treatment plans? So I'm getting radiation right now, um, and that's standard care. So I had stage two locally advanced cancer, so my cancer had spread to my lymph nodes, and I got a a lumpectomy because with chemo and a clinical trial drug, all the tumors, I had six tumors in my breast, my left breast, they all went away. And I had one large tumor, like um, four and a half centimeters by two and a half centimeters in my lymph nodes. And that shrunk like by half. So because of that, I, you know, would have had to get radiation anyway. And I'm also a candidate for a clinical trial. The goal with this clinical trial will be to basically lower the chance of my recurrence and I'll be on that for three years and then I'll do hormone therapy for another few years and hopefully end in time to have a baby. (laughs) And um, in terms of writing, you know, I am starting to just try and develop a new set of skills, I think, as a reporter. Like I said, I want to write more about healthcare fraud. Um, I'm probably going to be doing more essays. I think that I need to start figuring out who are the patients that don't have health coverage and what their lives are like, because what I've come to realize, and while I should have really known this as a healthcare reporter, I didn't really intuitively understand it. If you don't have health insurance, you really don't have any access to healthcare. And We can talk about different ways that you can change the healthcare system and maybe insurance won't be a part of a future healthcare system. There are nearly half a million people in Florida who don't have access to healthcare insurance. So I'm going to start exploring 
how to report on what their lives are like and who they are. So, Alexandra, we appreciate your willingness to share your story. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys having me. And we'll be following your health policy coverage as well. Okay, thanks. Take care. So now let's talk about a fairly wild story about a CEO who appears to have lied about her age in order to get on a few 30 under 30 style lists. Oh, Lord, who is this CEO? So her name is Jessica Richman. Until a few weeks ago, she was running Ubiome. That's a San Francisco-based microbiome testing startup. But the company has been a huge mess lately. Its offices got raided by the FBI a few weeks ago as part of an investigation into improper billing practices. Richmond and her co-founder have been put on leave. A few board members have resigned. The company's put its clinical operations on hold. Not what you look for. Anyway, the latest shoe dropped the other day when Business Insider reported that Richmond had told journalists she was younger than she actually is in what was an apparent effort to get on lists from Business Insider and CNN showcasing founders under age 30 or under age 40. In fact, Richmond is 45. So guys, do we think there's a takeaway here about healthcare's many, you know, 30 under 30 style lists? So my take is that I love this. I think it's so funny that she lied about her age. Like, this is fantastic. This is the kind of lying I can absolutely get behind. And I'm going to say, as as someone who is too old to be on these lists, I mean, maybe there's a list out there like 50 over 50, and I would... I would gladly join a list like that. But I I also just feel like this whole Ubiome story seems very overdone and kind of overreported. I mean, I I get that we love to to kick these, you know, kick around these companies, but it just seems like we're all sort of everyone is sort of searching for the next Theranos. And I don't know, Ubiome seems a pale comparison. I would agree to an extent, but what I love so much about this particular Ubiome revelation is that why on earth? I mean, there are so many blank under blank lists, even the sort of famous Forbes 30 under 30, they segment it by like, what you do for a living. And there seem to be like more of those segments each year. So it ends up being a sort of like 650 under 30. And then you add that Business Insider has one and CNN has one, etc. So to lie about your age, just to get on one of the apparently infinite number of these lists, which no one remembers one month after they come out, is so brazen and baffling that I, I... I'm on the side of people over-reporting this. I want more. And I do think the fact that there was apparently no vetting of her age before she made it onto these lists, the fact that apparently she saw this as an opportunity to get publicity for her company and or her brand ought to prompt some soul-searching for the people who draw up these lists about what they're really accomplishing from a journalistic perspective. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Alex Hogan, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and your thoughts on 30 under 30 style lists. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. You can also nominate me for the grumpy old man over 50 list. Uh, If not, we'll see you next week. 